Hello, welcome to the Latitude Book Shambles specials. I'm afraid to say there's no Josie Long in the field this year. Just a warning that there will be some background noise. All of these were recorded in different corners of a Suffolk field. Sometimes on stage we had Mavis Staples in the background, which was wonderful, by the way, uh, or public service broadcasting, or many other bands, or occasionally merely noisy poets talking. So you will hear some background noise, and that is just obviously part of the festival atmosphere. So welcome to the Latitude Book Shambles specials. Our first guest is the comedian and author and uh, definitely a broadcaster because she was actually at Latitude recording a documentary for Radio 4, which will be out soon. This is Susan Kalman. Yeah, actually I should talk about your book because your book is uh, its a really interesting personal take on going through, well the experience of living in your mind with uh, depression and that strange thing of being uh, where you are a comedian who goes on stage and goes I'm really hey look at me everyone yeah and because uh, Spike Milligan I'll start off with it right Spike Milligan talked about mental health and he said the reason that people think that comedians have more mental health issues is because it's like a, a an ink stain on a white shirt yes it just shows up so much mm-hmm. so first of all mm. because you do talk a little bit about that in, in, in the book what were you worried about writing can I call it a memoir it is a no, memoir that's, yeah, yeah I think it's probably it's, that um, yeah were you worried about the fact that people might just go, oh, another comedian dealing with it, or did you...? No, because I think, uh, because I didn't come to comedy until late in life, I had a whole life experience before that. You know, I didn't start comedy until I was in my early 30s, and I'd, I'd done a lot before that, so it's not just about comedy. Comedy's actually a much later part of the book. It's much more actually about uh, being a teenager and being in your early 20s and not being able to deal with depression particularly so and also genuinely they asked me to write the book I wrote it and kind of forgot it was going to be published so did they ask you was it was it originally your idea did someone say it Susan we've read an interview and... a Radio 4 show I did uh, with the wonderful Lindsay Fenner who's a great producer um, and I did an episode uh, of my show and uh, this, a publisher came to me and said, do you want to write about anything? And that's the one episode of anything I've ever done in my life that's had more reaction. It was that show. And people continued to email me and say they'd heard the show. And uh, you can only do so much in 28 minutes. A, you have to be funny, because it's a comedy show. And I thought, that's something that you could expand on properly. Um, and so I said, can I write about this? And they said, absolutely. And I battered it out in two months. And they published it. And it's done incredibly well so but I really genuinely can you explain the title uh, cheer up love adventures in depression with the crab of hate so I tried to explain my everyone's depression is different you know and so the crab of hate is how I try and describe it so a little crab crawls on my back grabs hold of my ears and whispers bad things in my ear about how shit I am and you can't see it when you look at me because it's behind me, but it's always there. So it's just a way of trying to explain. It's a constant murmur. And my attempt is to stop it talking to me. It's not a voice in my head. It's not that. It's just a way of trying to describe whatever I do. You know, after I do a show, even if it's gone really well, I'll go back to my hotel and think, that was terrible, that was awful. And so it's a constant battle in my own head to say I'm worth something is the battle that I have all the time. And so it's really about that lack of self-confidence, which I've had my whole life. It's not about comedy. I've had it since I can remember, a lack of confidence in myself. So, 
And how did comedy... Well, actually, one thing which is... In terms of whenever I talk to therapists, certainly the ones that I have kind of uh, trusted most, they would say that the, the starting point, one of the most important points, is to find out that you don't have to be as good a person as you think you must be. Yeah. And that one of the problems we have, I suppose, is that we observe everyone else on the outside, we are on the inside, and therefore when we're at a party, when we're at somewhere social, when we're in a field or a festival, whatever, you go, how is that person managing to be like that? Yes. And yet I am like that. Mm-hmm. And of course they, if they're looking at you, thinking, uh, exa- may well be thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah. So dealing with all those things, how does that change when you start to present yourself on stage and you're presenting your mind i'm a i'm a different person on stage uh, i'm uh, me but i'm the person i would like to be so when i'm on stage i'm actually the happiest because i am confident and flirtatious and i don't take any shit from anyone and i'll tell people to bugger off and i express in my head what i wish i actually said so actually being on stage is the person i wish i was um, and I fit in so my whole life I've never felt, it, felt I fitted in anywhere um, I think growing up uh, gay in Glasgow in the 80s and 90s was not entirely pleasant and so I've never felt I fitted in whereas when I'm on stage I feel like I fit in because I'm the person I wish I was off stage so uh, comedy actually saved my life in a lot of ways because I could finally be the person I wish I was off stage so it's a strange thing. So off stage, I'm very shy and I worry about everything all the time. But on stage, I walk on and go, "Come on, then." Has this it is me. changed? How much does it change you? For because I think sometimes my wife says that I'm a lot more miserable now and not nearly as much fun. And uh, <laughs> I sometimes think that's because for two and a half hours a night, if they're unlucky, uh, ninety minutes if I do <laughs> what the venue asked me to. Uh, I am there doing a lot of, as you were saying, it's all the things that are in your head that you want to share. Yeah. And so because you've had this chance to express, I sometimes find the most joyous shows that I tour are the ones where afterwards I have the most difficult time in after the show mm-hmm. and the most difficult time getting to the show mm-hmm. and all of those things. Almost as if you're only allowed to have this amount of joy. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's been one of the, uh, not battles in my relationship and... My wife's a very understanding woman. From my first shows at the Fringe to now, we now balance that. Because when I started at the Fringe, you've got 26 days where you're the centre of attention and you're being who you want to be, and then you go home. And it's very different. And we're, we're much better, and I'm much better at that. Comedy's given me confidence without question, but at the same time, it is a very different, difficult thing. And, you know, my wife, as I say in the book, said to me, am I not enough for you? And I had to say, no. There's a part of my soul missing that those 250 disinterested people in Corby... <laughs> and they should like you in Corby. They didn't like me in Little Corby. Scotland, little Scotland, they Corby. They didn't like me in Is Corby. that because, in fact, because you, when you walk through Corby, there's all, you know, the flags out, out there, Scottish flags. Is it actually because they want someone who is exactly what they think they is Scottish? Ke- they want Kevin Bridges or Frankie Boyle. Yeah. And my promoter That's said... That's roughly how I feel when I'm on you'll stage. You'll do great in Corby. It's full of Scottish people. And I said... That doesn't mean anything. Some of the most difficult gigs I've ever done are in front of lesbians. Because they sit with their arms folded and go, right then, come on then. Just because you're doing a show in front of people who are the same as you, actually sometimes that's worse. The better shows are often people who are the absolute opposite of you because then there's something to feed off. You know, when you're talking about how much I wanted to get married before equal marriage to a group of lesbians, they go, yeah, so do we. And there's nothing to... 
they're saying, well, tell us something we don't know. Whereas when you do a show about equal marriage in front of a group of very much older uh, right-wing middle-class people, they're the ones that you get the feedback yeah. from. So actually, doing diametrically opposed, you know, politically is actually more fun sometimes. Because if you're just speaking to a group of, of left-wing people about how crap everything is, they go, yeah, it is, isn't it? And actually, sometimes it's fun to have people. You know, when I've I'm just been on tour, I talk about Brexit a little bit, not a huge amount, but I talk about Brexit a little bit, and I see everyone, you know, in Scotland, not everyone in Scotland, but we voted against it, and they go, ooh, and that's fun. You go right then, come on then. Come on then, let's so have a conversation. So is that you get? Because I'm always interested in that thing where one of the problems I used to have was what I was on Radio 4 was not as loud and ridiculous as I am on stage and in reality. And so sometimes people come and go, oh, well, I really wasn't expecting that. Whereas I think now people just know that, oh, it'll be a weird night and he'll start shouting and one moment he'll be talking about Tarkovsky and the next mm-hmm. moment he'll be talking about where he lost his flip-flop or whatever. And, and I wonder if sometimes there is a when you go to areas that you might not be able to on Radio 4 yes. the audience go oh oh hang on we what I very carefully do is this structure is structure is my king so the first 45 minutes of my show is always a very gentle how are you all <clears throat> you've heard me on the news quiz lovely to meet you lovely to meet you and they all feel nice and comfortable and then the second half of my shows are always much more about so the second half of my show this year is about feminism and the DUP and homophobia and being called an abomination by a political party but the first half of it to make them all feel happy is about being on Celebrity University Challenge and they you know if they've not seen seen comedy before if they've not seen me before they feel reassured that I'm a nice person before I shout for some time about things that really matter so I always try and structure it so that no one feels terrified and they go to the interval and then in the second half when they've got to know me I do what I want to do I should do that this is explaining a lot of the reasons I didn't go down so well in Luton last night (laughs) Luton's only jazz and blues club Um, I really brought the blues to them Um, that is uh, so are you going to write anything more have you got another book yes I've got another book uh, about uh, kindness because it's, I'm trying to do the opposite of uh, the, the book about depression, which is about uh, the kind of society I would like to live in. And it's about, it's not about random acts of kindness, it's about kindness in general. It's about stopping and talking to people and it's about communication with people. And so I'm, I'm writing that just now. And as part of the tour, I was, it's basically a travelogue in a lot of ways because I went to many different places. Uh, I am a radical lesbian feminist who voted Remain and I was in very Brexity areas and actually it's about that kind of I think the world, we're told that this is a horrible place by some journalists and newspapers and I don't believe it and so it's a personal journey of finding kindness, because I, kindness makes me happy, if people were kinder, people would be happier and so it's about it's about that so it'll be you out next year is, uh... You went at the, the naming day, no. weren't you, last year? Yeah, you had a nice bit of that kindness, didn't you? A little bit of God Bless You, Mr Rosewater by Kurt Vonnegut. Beautiful. You know that, don't you? Yes. God damn it, you've got to be kind. That's actually part of my show is about the uh, is uh, about aggressive kindness, really, yes. really, and uh, facetious kindness, which is when you decide to boldly be kind to someone who's cruel and realise that either way, either your kindness will help them or in another way, mm. they'll despise your kindness so much that it will hurt them. <laughs> so either way, it's a victory. And well, I'm not sure that's yeah. the right way to approach kindness well, sometimes. For example, uh, my wife and I were going into the local supermarket the other day and we saw an elderly woman struggling and we stopped the car. We'd finished our shopping and said, do you want us to do your shopping? 
92 years old. I said, sit in your car, we'll go and get your shopping. Got our shopping. Uh, her friend emailed me, they're part of a bridge club, four old ladies, and I now send them postcards wherever I go. So I was in Brighton this week and I sent all four of them a postcard. And I played bridge when I was younger and I'm going to go around and play bridge with them. And I've made a communication with four 92-year-old ladies in Glasgow who all live on their own. And uh, that's a nice thing to do. And we do our shopping. And, and they're sitting at home now going, oh no, that kind woman's coming again. <laughs> the, I think it's a beautiful you know? thing. I think, I think you're right. I think that, that, that part of the problem is that very often we start the day with either the newspaper or social media. Yeah. So you start the day with quite often the worst elements of, of, yes. of, of humanity. You're reading about, uh, you're reading vindictively written pieces mm-hmm. uh, which are often crucifying individuals. And you're right, if you actually start off with kindness. Yeah. So I went to Brighton, wrote them all a postcard, popped it in the post because they like to get a letter or a card and my wife and I both correspond with them and write them letters and you know I don't read the newspapers unless I'm on the news quiz, I, I don't even look at the news and doing nice things like that, uh, it's just a, it's a lovely thing and it, didn't, it took 20 minutes out of our day and we've made a connection with four lovely women. So, and Margot, she was telling me, Born, she lives in the same house she was born in, and, and beautiful, lovely people. So it doesn't take any time out of my life to write a wee postcard from Brighton to someone. So it's about those kind of things. It's really about, I, I go out of my way to try and be kind to people and make those connections, and I've made a lot of connections with people I wouldn't have spoken to before. So that's really what it's about. It's a wishy-washy lefty liberal but book not, about, you know... No, 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 <clears throat> stop that immediately, because that's... <laughs> That is, I think, one of the, the, the you know, the, the, the kind of the Hopkins journalists and all of those people. Their, their desire is because I think very often liberal and left-wing people are quite questioning people. They can be sceptical people and they are constantly worrying about why do I think that and am I doing the right thing? And therefore, every time they throw a little thing, do you know that love and kindness, they're just, they were fads and weaknesses, right? And then, and the great thing is you can actually check the science experiments that have been done involving love and kindness... And uh, it turns out it definitely is a good thing. Yes. You know, you, the different experiments, even just done with rats, and, and in kind of the, the, uh, the, the different treatment of them. You know, wire monkeys and, and the soft monkeys, those incredible experiments done by uh, Harry Harlow. All of those things show that... I mean, that's what I... You know, as when I think of my son, who... Um, one of my favourite things he did in the last week was uh, he was reading a book, and uh, one of his friends went, that's a girl's book. And he went, there's no such thing as girls' books and boys' books. And I thought, yeah! yeah. And then... Some people go, oh, you probably brainwashed him to that. And you go, well, imagine if you've brainwashed a child to actually have more opportunities to meet more people and be more accepting. Oh, no. No, yeah. Imagine, and some people will think that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You've managed to broaden the possible horizons. My niece, who's five, plays um, Auntie Susan and Auntie Lee are nursery. Uh, and they dress as princesses, which is the wrong part of the story, obviously. But I think that's lovely. And I'm sure some people would say that my sister is doing the wrong thing by saying that our relationship is fine, but Grace grows up and all our friends go, oh, that's bad, because I do children's BBC. That's bad to Susan, she's married to Auntie Lee. And it's a beautiful thing. It makes me so happy that my wee niece is growing up going, yeah, whatever, no bother at all, you know. I mean, I wish she would let me buy her uh, a Darth Vader costume instead of a princess one, but I'm going to work on her. That's what I need to do. But it's, about, it's just why about... Do you, why do you have to make her evil? Because Why couldn't she, she be Luke Skywalker or Han Solo? She's a little 
So your wife knows a lot about computer games as well. Yeah, yeah. That's what my son always remembers from that afternoon yeah, yeah, he had yeah. in the pub Gamer. with her. Yeah, absolutely. Outside the pub, though, not in the pub. Yeah, oh, not in the pub. There was no Getting children, there were no children was, uh, in the pub. There were no children yeah. in the pub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's that's one of the biggest problems. The whole kindness thing is it's, it's been made out. One to of be. the things in life that I have control of is how I behave to you. Therefore, I make a choice of how I behave to you. And if I don't like someone, I have a choice about how to behave to them. But I also have a choice to be kind to you. And it's not something that anyone else has taken away from me. It's not something that the Conservative government have affected me on. This is my decision as to how I interact with you. And I am taking the choice to be kind to people. And, you know, on my Twitter feed, it's full of cats and positivity. And my decision is to be kind and to be positive. And that means that when I send a tweet about the DUP or something like that, I think it is very clear I'm very upset about something. But I choose. It's, it's, my, it's within my control how I behave to you. And I choose to be kind and positive. May as well go and live in a teepee. Yeah? Yeah? Eat, ve- eat vegetables and stuff. That's so, what I think happened in the last election, though. I was kind of interested because the, that whole thing of people are taking your money and there's people who don't deserve it and there's people who aren't working as hard as you and, and the middle class are worse off, actually, and all of that stuff. And actually, I think more and more people are going, do you know what? To live in a civilization, if you're doing all right, you know, both you and me, we're, do, we're doing all right. You yeah. know, we, we don't have to check the price of things in a supermarket, but I hope, like me, you do. Gonna be screwed. Yeah, sure. I, I yeah. still yeah. check, but um, and you go, yeah. Well, you pay a little bit more tax then, and I think that's. I think there is a there's a slight change, which as much as so much of the media is is saying, everyone else is trying to steal from you, mm-hmm. everyone else will be cruel to you. Mm-hmm. I think I just get the sense that there is a little bit more. So well done for timing of the book. It's the perfect time to market your kindness book. Thanks very much. What indeed. a great angle, kindness. Thanks is. very much indeed. <laughs> Next, we spoke with comedian and uh, science radio broadcaster and new author, Helen Keane. Right, I'm with uh, Helen Keane backstage behind a noisy uh, sound system, some wigwams and some ferns. Um, My natural habitat. What is your... You have written a book uh, which is all about the science of Game of Thrones. Yes. Why? So you are a Game of Thrones obsessed? Yeah, well, I'm not well. Yeah, I kind of like it. It's a fun show. It's Let's kind do of, that again yeah. because remember, you're trying to sell oh, the Oh, sorry, book. I'm trying to sell so the book. you love it, you love it. Yeah, yeah, I do, sorry, yeah. So yeah, I am a huge fan of the show and the books as well, actually. So it's kind of nice that when you actually like both of them, you kind of go, oh, I actually love the show and I love the books for different reasons. So that's kind of, yeah. What was your way in scientifically? Like the first thing, because I can imagine that because it deals with a level of mysticism, but then sometimes, you know, it didn't all end up being the whole thing. Of course, quantum theory explains this dragon, did it? <laughs> it didn't, no. No, it was just, I just think, kind of dragons, because dragons are mythical. So that was one of the really big um, ways in, because dragons are obviously mythical creatures. But at the same time, we do have lizards and Komodo dragons in our world. And there was some quite a lot of really weird kind of sort of coincidences about the way that mythical dragons behave and the way that lizards behave in our world so things like the um, the sex difference thing that they can change you know dragons in Game of Thrones can change sex at will they can fly they can you know and only some of those things obviously are possible but we know lizards for instance hatch at different temperatures so I feel like we're repeating oh, what we just said no no, no we yes. didn't talk about this no, no, though no. when we did that, that podcast which is well that's interesting because I nearly talked about that we, we just did a, a podcast called it's Geek yes, Science sorry, it? Geek Cheek but yes geek sorry cheek. And, yes. and it's uh, one of the rare occasions where I'm allowed to be anywhere near anything described as chic and, uh, <laughs> but the um, 
the Komodo dragon, so that can... Is it called Parthogenesis? Yes. What's it? Parthogenesis. So a Komodo dragon, if a, a, a female Komodo dragon finds herself in a situation, say on an archipe- archipelago, I can never say that word, Ar- say on an archipelago, uh, then and she doesn't have a mate she doesn't have a male to mate with she can lay her own eggs all of them will hatch as males they won't so they're not actual genetic copies of her but they're they're all their makeup is derived from her genetic makeup and they can mate with the other females who may have got stranded in this archipelago with her and so it's quite incestuous but that basically as a sort of evolutionary strategy to carry on an animal that might find itself isolated that might otherwise find itself dying out so that is quite a magical in inverted commas thing that uh, komodo dragons can do what was the uh, what for you was the bit where you you were looking at something you thought I can't find the angle I can't and then suddenly managed to weld the science and the Game of Thrones story together. Um, I think there were a few a few of the psychology things because there's quite a lot of sort of because it's kind of a, it feels like a bit of a cheat answer because it's you know it's obviously it's about people and people are sort of the same in this world but also um, I think just the really interesting stuff about um, planets as well because I'm a bit of a space nerd so just the whole stuff about orbits and just the fact how much people have got into that so how much astronomers have taken that really seriously and gone ah but this wouldn't actually explain you know so you do get into this whole thing of elliptical orbits and you know irregular seasons and solar flares and you know all these different explanations for what on earth is going on in uh, Game of Thrones the seasons a few you know that we've just had winter is come basically that's literally all i know about it i've never yeah, seen it winter's i know i coming. should see it the um <laughs> now your obsession with uh, space led to a brilliant show called it is rocket science which was both live and also radio series and i didn't know anything about jack parsons mm. until i saw your show and then suddenly that beautiful moment where something has been placed in your brain and jack parsons appeared to be <laughs> everywhere you were a doorway to jack parsons <laughs> can you for those people who don't know much about jack parsons why is he such an intriguing figure in our journey into space? He is, I think he is just absolutely epitomises this idea that you really have at the beginning of the space race where, well, not sorry, not space race, the beginning of um, development of space rockets where it's a really fringe interest. A lot of people don't believe it's possible. You know, even more people probably think, well, why on earth would we want to go to space? Why on earth would we want to leave planet Earth? So it really attracts people who are very free thinking, who have very original ways of looking at the world already. And obviously quite an extreme example of that is Jack Parsons, who is a thelemite, not a Satanist, I get into trouble for saying that. Uh, he's a follower of Alistair Crowley um, he is you know so he's very into the occult and that really does inform his science he, I mean he sees the two I mean I'd say he sees the two as kind of separate but I'm not sure that he does I think he sort of um, obviously to, to a certain degree but I think some of the sort of for instance some of these innovations you know chemically people said oh well, some of these chemicals are things that he knows about through reading these occult books so things like potassium perchlorate and stuff have other sort of histories and other kind of meanings behind them as well as being used for so- solid rocket fuel <laughs> So, um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, just to explain to listeners, my son just decided to run in there, grab me, <laughs> hug me, and then run away as he kind of just wilted into the background. He's <laughs> run into the trees now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's kind of, I think there's that sort of um, kind of crossover. And I think that for me just really epitomizes why it was so exciting, why it's so interesting, that period right at the beginning when, you know, it is all just fantasy, it is all in the realms of is this possible, is this not possible? And I think that's what's really exciting. And I think, you know, if the show works at all, that's why the show works because it's just, it's such an interesting story. And it's very, very different now, obviously. I think there, there are obviously areas where, you know, people are really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of what's possible and there are sort of fringe beliefs and people aren't sure about it. But I think in those early days of space, we live at a time when we can see how that played out. We can see that 
but you know it is possible it's just we lack maybe the will now or the money or whatever but uh, do you think we should be looking towards going to Mars within the next decade or so yeah I mean definitely I mean I think because we do I mean I'm obviously uh, it's, uh, I can see this arguments for and against so I'm a big believer in human spaceflight I think we need to send humans it's not just enough to send robots so yeah I mean I totally think we need to we need to get you know we need to get to Mars because we need to get we absolutely do need to get that multi-planet species thing going on you know we need to get out of the solar system and the only way we're going to do that is by colonising other planets in our own solar system first and then we can go beyond and I mean just at the moment just all this data that's coming in from you know this extrasolar planets mm. is just you know so they're out there we know these planets are out there it's not a pipe dream it's not a complete fantasy there are going to be some rocky worlds out there with water on them is it problematic though to think that we currently live on a planet which we've adapted we specifically adapted to live here and we've, we're making some quite erratic decisions on that so moving to somewhere where we go <laughs> yeah, we well actually this one up yeah, yeah. so let's move on well, no, I, think, I think those are kind of i think those get it's kind of a false sort of I think yeah absolutely we should do a better job with the planet that we've got that's not that's sort of non-negotiable I think so too but you know there are things that we can't predict for there are things that you know our technology you know even in 200 300 years we might be great or we might be threatened by an asteroid there might be you know something coming towards us that we we can't get out of the way of and we do need to evacuate or we do need to you know put contingency plans in so I think just generally we just need to be sort of a bit more careful about ourselves and our planet but just in the sense of yeah being elsewhere as well as being on earth because never know what's going to happen. Never know what's around the corner. <laughs> I would imagine that you know some of your childhood space dreams. You're perhaps going, oh, they still haven't happened. And yeah. you know when we in the 1970s and the 19, uh, 1980s for you, or uh, <laughs> that you know the, the there was still you know lots of. Certainly, when I was growing up, oh, we were going to be on Mars. You know, I love those books that kind of Osborne book of 2020. And you yes. go, the Olympics is not happening on Mars, <laughs> is it? You know, no. I, actually, I think it was Moon Olympics. So yeah. silly, silly of me to say that, but I think they have Moon Olympics in the Osborne book of the future in 2020. Um, what though have you gone? Do you know what? That is a wonderful accomplishment for for all of the imagination that did not come to reality I think well just specifically for space or do you know what it doesn't have to be space you'd rather say something else well I was just thinking because something I was reading about the book was CRISPR Cas9 which is just so kind of potentially terrifying but at the same time you know the, the potential for good that that has the potential to kind of basically make viruses you know obviously made huge strides medically with things like HIV and AIDS at the moment but just the idea that you can you know you can um, edit the genome of a virus and therefore you can make it harmless I mean that's incredible you know imagine if we could do that we could eradicate viruses from the world there are all these there's these so many ch- I mean that and that just we seem to be really kind of on the verge of that and it just seems to have happened really really quickly and then you sort of go oh, we're teetering into this future where something really really extraordinary like that can happen and also the potential to make unicorns corns and dragons uh gotta mention that because obviously yeah that's kind of how i got into it but just i mean yeah things like that which you kind of i mean as a, as a lay person you didn't see that coming and it's kind of like wow nobody nobody kind of really predicted that sort of power i don't think in uh, this stage of our you know like now kind of it's quite like nanomedicine isn't it when you when you yeah no, sorry, go on. No, 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 that's what I was going to yeah, say. It was just, just like nanomedicine. <laughs> you, you, you look at that and you go, yes, this is a kind of its own version of Fantastic Voyage, that move with Donald Pleasance, you know, where you go, yeah, it's not miniature people. No, it's, it's not injected. Yeah, but it is kind of, I mean, the, the potential, to, I mean, obviously the terrifying potential of that, but the potential for good, you know, the, I mean, disease and so you know, there's so much, you know, just anything that you can sort of move towards, yeah, I mean, yeah, bring it on, I say. <laughs> Thank you, I better let you go. Oh, you're be yeah. in trouble. <laughs> And finally, we caught up with a previous guest on Book Shambles, Professor Alice Roberts. You can hear the full version of this chat 
with Alice on an upcoming episode of the Science Shambles podcast. The, um, on, a, on a different subject, just very briefly, because you've just been doing a show about art, uh, I'm doing a show about art at the Edinburgh Festival and I'm constantly changing the paintings that I want to talk about. Uh, a 20th century uh, painting uh, or artist that you think uh, should be unavoidable uh, in any hour-long show that is attempting to tackle art? Oh, that's really tricky. Um... You won't be held to this, by the way. If you change your opinion tomorrow, yeah. Go, oh, Alice yeah, Robinson. Yeah, I know. It's like yeah, it's one of those things where people get people go. And what would your last meal be? And I've been like, I can't answer that. I'm going to have no, to go away. No and way. Think about are that you then placed in a cell yeah. where this is the only place you have to <laughs> stare at? None of that. No, damn it. I wanted something else. Um, I. Uh, does it have to be painting rather than sculpture? No, no. It could be, it could be any, any any work of art actually. Yeah. Um, I I would probably say Henry Moore's sculptures then. Um, uh, and I think for the ability to abstract natural form, but to retain something of the essence of it, and I don't know how he does it. So it, I, I find them utterly, utterly extraordinary. It's almost like, I don't believe in souls, but it's almost like he captures the soul of something. He distills it out so that it is no longer, it's not representing the object um, in, a, in a realistic way at all, or representing the body or the sheep or whatever it is he's drawing in a, a, or sculpting in a realistic way, but he captures what it is, the thing inside it, the, the, the kind of essence of it. I think he's wonderful. I saw some. I wish I could remember. That. I have made a note of it somewhere. But there, there was a, uh, um, a sculpture in the in the Quaker building, the, the Quaker meeting house on the Euston Road, and it's similar to Henry Moore. I can't remember the name of the uh, of the, of the sculptor, but she. It, it's in. Uh, it's a commemoration of uh, a, a Quaker who did a tremendous amount to um, save Jewish children. Uh, a kind of not. It wasn't Kinder Transport, but a you know kind of similar a project to yeah. try and get it in the Second World War. And again, it was the shape is 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 barely there, and yet somehow what it conveyed. Yeah, I, it was overwhelming. Just walking up the staircase, thinking I've never seen this before. I wonder and who it was. It was female artists. It was. It was a uh, yeah. Was it no, it wasn't Hepworth. No. It wasn't anyone I'd heard of before. And I, I think she was a Quaker, and I think the woman she was uh, kind of memorialising was was a Quaker. But it was just this. It was just a shape. It was a mother, and it was a child, and it was. And then once you read the description as well, the sense of the of of the saving of the you know it was beautiful. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll email it to you. What about Bix? Then we haven't talked about Bix. Don't matter. We've done all your books that you like. Did that a few months ago, didn't we? Oh, so what, I'm, I'm reading. Um, I'm obsessed by Neil Gaiman at the moment. Oh, are you? So Why are you suddenly obsessed by him? Through. Um, I think because I read American Gods last year and that just completely gripped me and is still with me and obviously now it's now it's a, a series as well which is amazing uh, and um, I read The Ocean at the End of the Lane which I found absolutely beautiful and Stardust so yeah so that's I'm, interesting that's I'm what getting da- gripped by Daniel Davis you know Daniel Davis wrote the compatibility gene based up in Manchester interesting guy yeah and uh, he was saying when he's writing science he realises we can never write science as beautifully as fiction and he yeah. mentioned that as well <gasps> the ocean at the end it's that ability to construct those other worlds that Gaiman takes you into and then and then the other other world thing that I'm into at the moment is revisiting a passion from my youth which is Rosemary Sutcliffe and her historical novels for teenagers really so I, re- I reread Song for a Dark Queen when I was making the Celts a couple of years ago which is just an amazing book and I remember reading it as a teenager and being bowled over by it and I was bowled over by it again and I was you know I was reading it in the bath and I was in tears and uh, my sort of husband was like what are you you're reading a kid's book and you're in tears I'm like it's not really a kid's book and she just captures you know she takes you back to those times and um, you're suddenly there in in this world of you know Roman oppression and 
and the terrible story of, of Boudicca and her daughters, and it's, yeah, extraordinary. I'm reading Eagle of the Ninth at the moment, so that's, yeah. Oh, that's, wow, that's, Again. the nostalgia surges when you said that. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to let you go, you've got to go home, haven't you? Yeah, I have, I'm going to trek back over from the southeast to the southwest. Bertha Bracey, that's who did the uh, um, sculpture of, uh, in, in the Quaker building on Euston Road. And, yeah, just, just, just came to me through Trent, the producer, with his magic screens. Thanks very much for listening. And uh, a quick reminder, if any of you are at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, that I will be up there doing two shows, one at 1.30pm at the Museum of Scotland, which is kind of my idiot's attempted guide to art, and then at 6.20 at the Stand Comedy Club, where I'll be all kind of cross and then happy and then happy and cross and then eventually confused. Don't forget, if you'd like to check on the reading list for this particular episode or any episodes, or indeed find out other guests that we've had on, the full list of both those things is at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can become a patron for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash bookshambles. And apart from helping us continue to make these shows, you'll also get access to extended episodes, behind-the-scenes videos, Uh, bonus episodes, all sorts of stuff there. And we'll have two more episodes coming up from the Latitude Festival, a poetry special of Book Shambles with Holly McNish, Luke Wright and others. And there'll also be an episode of the Science Shambles podcast, which you'll find at cosmicshambles.com slash science shambles, which will feature more with Alice Roberts, uh, chat with Dan Davis, and also with double Oscar winner Paul Franklin, who was the visual effects artist for both Inception and Interstellar. That will be out soon. And this Thursday will be, I suppose, a normal episode of Book Shambles. Another one we recorded out in Australia and New Zealand with Robin and Josie talking to comedian and author Ursula Carlson. Thanks very much for listening and we will be back then. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.